Hey everyone, Greg Wells here. Just wanted to take a moment and let you know that we have an app. During lockdown, uh, when everything sort of shut down, we put all our efforts and energies at Wells Performance into digital because we had to. Uh, clearly, I wasn't doing any public speaking around the world, so things needed to change. So we took something that we'd been working on for about three years sort of in the background and brought it to the like urgent forefront of what we were doing. And uh, we put all our efforts and energies into finishing our app. Uh, so I've had a number of PhDs working on this for many years. I've got Ming Cheng Tsai doing data analytics, Jessica Caterini doing the medical side of things, Evan Lewis doing the work on nutrition. I've been doing some stuff on on sleep and Sarah Thompson's been working on the kinesiology side of things. And we have built this app. We, we call it Vivio, V-I-I-V-I-O. That's Latin for life. The website's V-I-I-V.io. So Vivio. And we built an app that tracks your sleep, nutrition, exercise, and mindset using all the latest tools and technologies that are available in uh, iOS and Apple Watch. So it's built currently for Apple Watch and iPhone. It basically allows you to track your sleep, track your nutrition, track your exercise, track your mindset. And then we built an algorithm that gives you individualized recommendations based on your own results. I basically built an app that I wanted to have that had everything in one place. So I don't have to have just my, you know, my workout tracker and then my sleep tracker. And like, it's all over the place. We built one that has everything in one location. We used the latest research to build the scoring mechanisms. We score actually every single one of those areas. Eat, sleep, move, things gets a score out of 10 on a daily basis to give you a sense of how you're doing uh, against the latest research and the top thinking. So we're pretty excited about it. It's uh, definitely for biohackers. It's definitely for people that are really interested in you know, pushing the limits on their health and well-being and performance, which is probably you if you're listening to this podcast. Uh, introductory, the basic version is free, so you can check it out. Absolutely free. There's no cost. Uh, the pro version gets you the daily tips and access to your history if you want to see how you're doing and improving. So if you want to check it out, you can do so. No cost. If you want to get the pro version, we would be infinitely grateful and uh, just so privileged to have your support on that. So check it out, viiv.io. It's Vivio. We'd love to hear what you think of our new app that we built during lockdown. All right. Hope you're good and please enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. Great to be with you. Today, we're going to dig into the brain, not literally dig into it. We're just going to talk about it with Ned Mason and Dr. Eric Wan. I'm particularly interested in brain health, as you all know, and one of the epidemics that we don't talk about much right now, given that there's other pandemics to be worried about, is the epidemics of concussions. I've done some research on concussions at SickKids Hospital and hockey players using MRI and was fascinated by the long-term impacts on the brain even after these athletes were testing clear on all the normal ways of assessing whether or not someone's still being affected by the concussion. On MRI, we still found differences even when they were testing clear on questionnaires. And so I've become somewhat fascinated by concussions and the impact uh, of concussions on the brain. I'm also fascinated by neuroplasticity and how we can actually make the brain better. That, of course, was the focus of the latest book, Rest, Refocus, Recharge, that came out in March, right as every bookstore in the world closed. So today I'm really excited to talk to Ned Mason and Dr. Eric Wan from Wave Neuro. They're involved in a very cool project to use transcranial magnetic stimulation to stimulate the brain and help people with concussions to recover. 
Ned's got a background in military operations, and Dr. Eric Wan is a, is a uh, former flight surgeon with the U.S. Navy, and they've both come together to create a pretty cool company that's doing some pretty amazing things. And I'm excited to bring this conversation with you. They both give their backgrounds in the opening part of this conversation. So I'm not going to get into the lengthy bios because they will do that better for themselves than I can. And I think that there's some tremendous insights in this conversation about brain neurophysiology, but more importantly, how we can holistically improve our brain health. So I'm pretty pumped about this episode and sure that this is going to bring a lot of good value to you uh, in terms of things that you can do right now to improve your own brain health. All right, no further delays. Please enjoy my conversation with Ned Mason and Dr. Eric Wan from Wave Neuro. Eric and Ned, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Oh, really excited to be here. Thanks for having us. Oh, my pleasure. So where am I finding you guys today? Where's where's the office that I'm that I'm looking at at the moment? <laughs> we're in a we're in Newport Beach and uh kind of a unique time. We've uh had some fires in Orange County lately and so um, today's one of the first clear days we've had in, in a few days, but, uh, uh, but yeah, uh, calling you from Southern California. Nice. You know, it's, um, it, it's pretty crazy. Cause even a little while ago we had haze, like an orange haze in the sky here in Toronto from the fires in California. So that was pretty, um, obviously must've been really crazy for you guys down there. I'm sorry that that happened. What was that? What was that like for you? Just out of curiosity, since we've brought it up. Uh, it, you know, for us, it was, it, there was definitely a uh, significant haze, um, and, uh, a fairly, uh, powerful, um, smell, <laughs> but yeah, uh, only one of our staff had to be evacuated. And then the fires, they're not completely under control yet. Um, but they've allowed, uh, most of, uh, the people to return back to their homes. And I, I think that the amount of damage was fairly limited. So, okay. That's um, good. All right, let's dig into this. Uh, now that we've established that we're all safe and your environment's your, your environment is safe, so how did you two start working together? Like, give me the backstory. I'm I'm really curious about the the origin story for you two and what you're up to. Wow. Yeah, this is a this is actually a good one. It goes back a few years. Um, so I, I was a, a SEAL for 21 years and uh, recently retired uh, this past summer. And uh, about 15 years into my into my career. You know, I'd been to you know, Iraq, a number of the hot, hot spots, and through training, I'd had a number of TBIs, and they finally started to catch up with me. Um, and catch up with me, I mean, you know, sleep issues, focus, concentration, emotional regulation, word search, um, probably a lot of the similar things that you've heard from special operators, uh, you know, who have kind of been running pretty hard for the last couple decades. And it was getting to the point where I was starting to question the, my ability to you know, take my next career step, which was going to be uh, to command a SEAL team. And at that point, I, I was I was ready to walk away. And I'd gone to uh, one of my good friends, a guy named John Doolittle, who was a, a SEAL captain at the time and, and running. I don't know if you're familiar with some of the um, some terms like Thor or the uh, POTA. For, basically, they're the special operations um, programs that help you know, with performance, mental, physical, uh, they look at, you know, different technologies and things like this. So John was run, running this program, the, again, is at SOCOM called the POTIF, the Preservation of the Force and Family. It's just a phenomenal program that's very holistic. And, and um, so I went to him as a good friend. I'm like, man, John, this, I don't know if I trust myself right now to, to do the job I need to do in the future, uh, because I'm just, I'm not sleeping well principally. And then all these other things are, are becoming 
um, corollaries to that poor sleep. And he had been working with Eric recently because SOCOM was very interested in the technology at this company. And so he was familiar with what, what was going on. Uh, SOCOM had spent, sent a number of operators here uh, to start to validate the technology and work with it. And Eric can speak to that in more detail in, in, in a, a follow-on trial that ended up taking place. So he called up Eric that day. It was uh, December 23rd. And you know, uh, calls him up and he says, hey, Eric, I've got a guy here. You know, I, I know we're just starting to work with your technology, but I think he's a great candidate. Uh, he needs to get out there. And Eric says, send him. I'll, I'll be here. He's like, he can come out tomorrow. And so right away, you know, being in the government, I'm thinking, who, who works first on December 24th, much less accepts a guy um, to come in and, and start a treatment that, you know, that I'm going to have to be out there, you know, two or three weeks. I end up pushing that, you know, with my family. They're like, are you crazy? You start in January. And so yeah. I ended up moving out to uh, Southern California from Tampa in early January. And, you know, we'll talk through a little bit about the process, but basically I had no idea what I was getting into. Right. But, but probably like so many people that, that you work with and that um, a lot of us in this industry of performance and, and high performers that have maybe fallen off a little bit, um, I had tried everything. I had had every resource available. Um, Naval Special Warfare takes care of their people incredibly well. I and mean, the whole military does, but especially uh, special operations, I found that there was no lack of caring. There was no lack of monetary you know, availability to, to send me to everything. I mean, I'd done hyperbaric, I'd done gyro, I'd done, you know, um, a lot of the different programs, NICO-like programs uh, through the VA, and nothing worked. And so I did a lot of stuff on my own, you know, acupuncture, um, massage, chiropractic. I'd gone through all the neurologists, you know, and I'd done every beta blocker and every SSRI and everything you can imagine that everybody who goes through this does. And so I showed up here sight unseen. I had no idea what was going to happen. And, you know, walking away from my family for two or three weeks. I'm like, I, I don't know what's going to happen out here. I'm not sure what's, what I'm going to do, but hopefully I come back better. I show up day one and Eric's there to greet me and welcomes me to the company. And, you know, I, and then I, well, Eric is a medical doctor. He wasn't my treatment doctor. And I sat down with my treatment doctor, had a, um, had a quick clinical assessment to make sure I didn't have any contraindications for, for the treatment that I was about to get. And then they gave me a brain scan. And so I sat in a dark room for 10 minutes with an EEG cap on. And I walked out of there and they sat down with me and they basically told me every single thing about me. And they told me why I was feeling the way I was feeling. And they explained to me the way that, for example, my, um, my alpha was so distributed across well, I should have had a peak at 11 hertz, for example. And they, they made this understandable to me at the time. Obviously, I'm much more com uh, conversant in it now. But then my alpha frequency, because of all the blast exposure, was, uh, was very degraded, was not synchronized. I had high levels of theta and delta wave, which is a sleepy wave. So I was going through the day somewhat sleepy and, and not focused. Um, my coherence level across my brain was very low, meaning that I couldn't focus. I, I was fighting my own brain every time I needed to do something. Yeah. And then, you know, obviously I'd, I'd elevated beta, which oftentimes can be a great thing because that's what drives us. And that's what gives us our, our ability to have that working energy throughout the day. But mine was elevating at the wrong time at night, causing me to have some anxiety and lack of sleep and 
to wake up at three o'clock every morning with that, what am going through my list of things to do? Exactly. And so where so many people can overcome these things with behavioral training, which works wonderfully for, for a lot of people. But in this situation, because I'd had some physiological damage due to blast wave exposure, you know, I needed something a little bit more robust. And so that's, that's when we, um, the Eric and, and his company at the time went ahead and they used that EEG to figure out what alpha frequency should I be firing at. And then they used a TMS machine, a transcranial magnetic stimulation machine dialed to my frequency specifically and treated me for about 30 minutes a day for uh, a little over two weeks. And at the end of that two weeks, I had my first full night of sleep in a decade. Wow. It was game changing. Dr. Eric, tell me about your perspective on all that. Like, what's your journey <laughs> to get to the point where you've become, you know, fascinated by the neurophysiology of alpha, theta, delta, and beta? By the way, that's like the main subject of my book that I just published recently. So I'm like super fascinated by all of this. So I'll make sure that you guys get a copy of that afterwards. But yes, um, I'd, I'd, be, I'd love to know what your journey has been like to get to this point. Yeah, uh, and I'd be—I would love to read your book. Um, so uh, we'll be uh, eagerly awaiting uh, to read. But yeah, so uh, just for the benefit of your audience, um, kind of re rewinding back a little bit further, um, I guess my story begins. I was a, a Navy flight surgeon um, about 20 years ago, and uh, um, I was with the Marine Corps unit that uh, sustained some of the first casualties of the Second Gulf War. And uh, as a residue of that, had a good number of friends who were struggling with both uh, traumatic brain injuries and post-traumatic stress. And uh, I left the service to finish up my medical training um, at a couple of the Harvard hospitals. And then fast forward about 10 years, um, I was at the Boeing company. Most people know we build airplanes and satellites, but uh, we have little emergency rooms at all of our heavy manufacturing sites. And I, I'd taken on a role as uh, both the chief physician and then a chief technology officer for medical services. And so I heard about this technology and frankly was really skeptical. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but as um, fate would have it, one of my close friends um, was struggling quite a bit and uh, tried to take his own life. And so I thought, I spoke to his VA doctors and uh, they'd exhausted um, many different options. And I thought, why don't we go here and, and see if we can help? Because he'd been told over and over again, he had sustained multiple traumatic brain injuries and had a lot of scar tissue and, and they couldn't do much uh, to help that. And so we sent him here and his transformation was so dramatic. I, I struggled, uh, I think, to believe it. And uh, even though I knew he was my friend and uh, wasn't uh, embellishing or, or telling me a story, um, he, he had quite a transformation. And so I sent in a second Marine and a third Marine and was seeing these very significant changes. And then the discussion changed a bit. And so I was talking to neurosurgeons, neuroscientists, neurologists in the area to uh, kind of unpack this and understand you know, why they were achieving the results that they were. And a lot of it has to do with uh, personalization of protocol, uh, treating each individual as, as a unique um, person, and then customizing treatment protocols to the individual. And so we can unpack that a little bit but um, I decided to jump on as um, a team member uh, with what is now Wave Neuroscience around 2016. And that's right around the time I met Ned. And when he was talking about December, I was 
going back to my mind, I joined the company in October, so I'd only been there for a couple of months. But as soon as I met him, I knew I wanted him to be part of the team. But he was still he still had uh, several years left on his service obligations, so it wasn't until he retired uh, that we were able to we were able to pick him up. Um, but at that time, it's one of those interesting phenomena that he was, uh, by all outwardly indications, just a, a complete high performer, total stud. Um, and uh, uh, it surprised me talking to him in person. He he had mentioned that he uh, was not at his peak performance and was struggling a bit. And but to see him improve over uh, the next four to six weeks um, was really quite inspirational. And so, uh, you know, we, we kept in touch through the years. And uh, now four years later, uh, we get to do this uh, great work together. Very cool. I love it. Um, thank you for all that you're doing. I've done a little bit of research on traumatic brain injury and in hockey players using MRI at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. And we were very interested in the metabolic changes inside the brain post mild traumatic brain injury. So I would be curious to know um, from your experiential perspective uh, and from the science perspective, the neuroscience perspective, from what's, what is a traumatic brain injury and, and how does that affect the neurology of the brain? And that'll set the stage for maybe getting into how we can then track using alpha, theta, delta, and beta, and then get into personalization. But from a, your perspective, both Ned from an experiential perspective and Dr. Eric from a medical perspective, what's going on when we have a traumatic brain injury and, and what does that do to people? Yeah. I, I'll start with the experiential piece and I, I'm going to go a little broader than just than, um, just my experience because I have a lot of, a lot of peers have also had similar uh, experiences. So I'm going to kind of draw on all these um, experiences from across you know, my friends and my peers who have, who have had TBI. It usually starts out pretty mild. And by this, I mean the, the impact. So most of the people I know, it wasn't one massive concussion and all of a sudden their life changed. It was, again, just because of my industry. Sometimes it can be that way. But usually it was just multiple breaches, multiple um, rocket firings, you know, bumping your head during operations, and then, you know, having potentially a large IED explosion or things like that. But the way it, people usually didn't all of a sudden change overnight. It's kind of a it's, a, it's a process as people find that they're unable to deal with the world as clearly and as well and as um, appropriately as they used to. And, and so it comes out, it starts usually in maybe some road rage, maybe some, um, some word search. And for people not familiar with that, it's when you have something on the tip of your tongue all the time. And like, so for example, I got really good at covering it up. I would sit there and struggle. A conversation would be very hard, but I could, I could make it sound like I wasn't delaying. I just use a different word. and It wasn't the word I wanted. And so you can, you find ways to get around that. You start to have difficulty emotionally regulating yourself to the point where you find yourself yelling at your child or maybe your spouse or a girlfriend, and you can see yourself yelling at this person. You know you shouldn't get upset, yet you can't help yourself. And it's this lack of control. And then, of course, cognition. Um, as I was going through my treatment, I was, I was going through an, an MBA program, and I could study maybe 15 to 20 minutes, no matter. And I, 
like most athletes or other people, I, as a water polo player and a swimmer through college, I'll, I'll work just as hard as anybody. I know how to sit down. I will, I will grit it out. I will. It wasn't for lack of trying. I just could not sit there and focus on on schoolwork for more than fifteen minutes. And I think that's that's typical. And um, and all these things build to all singly. They're not a big deal. They're everybody can handle these things alone. You know, as if they were if they were only happening one at a time. But when you pile all these things together, it just becomes first frustrating. And then you get angry about it. And then at some point you have to decide, am I just not going to recognize this? Or, or am I going to finally realize that I have a problem and that there's something going on? And that's the hardest part. You, and me and a lot of my peers in the SEAL community, you don't want to admit you have a problem because then you become a victim. And high performers refuse to be a victim. I still do. And so that is so hard to overcome. But when all these things pile on and you try everything out there, I'll speak for myself here, you start to lose hope. I had lost all hope. And I was, I was to a point where I was like, you know what? This is my life for the rest of my life. This is where I'm going to be. And that's why sitting down with, with Eric and Wave Neuro and getting that first EEG and realizing there's something wrong with my brain. There's not something wrong with me. I know it sounds silly to say that. But it, it, it freed me from being like, okay, I'm not being a wimp. It's mm. not because of lack of effort. My brain is actually kind of messed up a little bit and it needs to get tweaked. And that's okay. That to me reminds me of a shoulder injury or I need to do like a little cleanup of my, of my knee and with getting scoped. I can do that. I can wrap my head around that. And there's, there's an outcome and there's a process and, and I'm good with that. And I think what we've seen with a lot of people coming in there is a level of hope that happens when, when you show somebody an EEG and you describe to them in English what is going on in your brain. And this might be, maybe, some of the reasons why you're feeling the way you are. Congratulations for going through that process because um, you're, you're absolutely correct. We don't allow ourselves to be victims. And I was a swimmer and a water polo player in college, so I can completely identify with burying yourself in training, um, you know, in competition, those sorts of things. And I've also been involved in, you know, that um, study on hockey players where you you don't admit that you're hurt, and or else you might get benched, and not be able to go back out. So that does cause significant problems that can accumulate to the point where you do lose hope. And that's why we've seen in um, in Canada, one of the things that you know breaks my heart more than anything is the casualties once people come home. And um, that that is, you know, breaks my heart like a lot. It just it hurts to see yeah. that you, know, you make it home and and you're still, you know, at war. So the fact that you were able to get through that process to the point where you've been able to make progress is pretty fantastic. So congratulations on going through that. It's pretty inspirational. And there are so many people that struggle with mild traumatic brain injuries and concussions that maybe weren't at war or weren't playing. They just bump your head and, and you can experience similar, um, go through an experience, similar experience. So this is important to talk about. Dr. Eric, what is your take on that? What's the neurological process? What do you, what have you learned from the neurophysiology of what's happening here that set the stage for you maybe being able to help people? 
That's uh, it's a great question, and frankly, we could talk for hours and days. Uh, I, I think on this because it's it's a rapidly evolving space, and I, I, I want to tip my hat to all the researchers: um, Daniel Porl, David Kaiser, Paul Rapp at Uniform Services University. Um, there's there's such a uh, I think a growing team of uh, academics and researchers who are constantly learning about this space, but. Um, there's a difference and there's some nuance in terms of mechanism of injury that's starting to emerge. And so in the military, we're, there's a lot of research on blast injuries or overpressurization injuries. And this is where even in autopsy, we see there's a unique signature that we see with these types of repeated concussions. And even just the training, we talk to a lot of these operators who, when they're breaching doors, there's a minimum safe distance where they need to overwhelm the enemy behind the door once they breach it. Just that training um, is resulting in concussions because uh, they joke about it, but I, I think it's significant that many times if they stand too close to the breach, blood will shoot out their nose. And uh, it's, you know, they, they talk about it as, as kind of a, a rite of passage, but to me, I'm thinking that's a moderate concussion by definition. And so the pattern that we see in many of these, uh, unfortunately, even in autopsies, uh, what, we, what we call junctional scarring. And so where white matter turns into gray matter, we see because it's a blast injury, there's a wave that's damaging cells. It seems to be in this specific area. It's significant because those are what we call glial cells or astroglial cells. Mm -hmm. And those are the substrate. It's connective tissue for the brain, but it's also a bit of a, a cleaning system. And when those structures are damaged, your brain's mechanism for sort of resetting every night when you sleep is disrupted. And so there's an accumulation of uh, proteins, both tau proteins and beta amyloid. You may, these may sound familiar to you, they've been associated with Alzheimer's disease. Uh, but over time, you know, there's a predisposition for those to develop in people with significant concussions and brain injuries as well. So we're starting to illuminate these facets uh, that are really interesting. And then the other type of brain injury uh, in the US that's being researched, uh, of, of course, is just straight mechanical uh, head injuries, blunt trauma from uh, football players, car accidents. Um, and uh, it's a similar but slightly different pattern. It's, it's not specifically at the junctions uh, of these brain cells. It can be really in any place that you're struck. And so I, I like to think of this in three dimensions. There's sort of anatomical change, which we've been talking about. There's also neurophysiologic or electrophysiologic change. And that's the area that we're more focused on. And the answer there is, your brain cells are pretty agnostic to the type of injury. They almost always respond by slowing down, going from what we call alpha to theta, which you're probably, this is language you're probably familiar with, but uh, for others in the audience, um, your brain starts firing just a bit slower. And many of us will have the neuroplasticity to recover that, uh, but with repeated concussions, many times it doesn't. And so that's the area that we tend to pick up is we're looking for waveform patterns consistent with durable injury. That can be due to scar tissue. It can just be due to neurons that are in shock and don't move back to their normal frequency. Um, from our perspective, um, it's not as relevant as how do we strive to fix that? And so we'll get into that in a moment. Uh, but the third, the third element that I think is worth talking about are sort of these behavioral changes. Ned talked about some of them, but there's now very good data showing that there's neuroendocrine disruption with these injuries as well. We don't know at a cellular level why this happens, but it's very common, for example, for men to have their testosterone levels drop precipitously, um, sometimes to kind of staggering levels. 
And so that's an element that I think we're learning now. You really have to treat the whole patient. If you're just looking at one dimension, if you are just imaging the brain and you're telling somebody, yeah, you've got scar tissue, there's nothing we can do. We're doing a disservice to that individual. If we're getting EEGs and showing them this area of your brain is disrupted, but not paying attention to the hormone disruption that's happened, we're also not serving that patient well. And so I think as a community, we're now getting these data points and we're starting to see these unifying principles emerge where we can better serve this population. And I think that's really important for, for all of us to understand is where we are now compared to 10 years ago, it's a light years of difference. And so what we're trying to do, and I'm going to take the next jump forward on, on how we treat these types of injuries is just like we talked about getting sort of a baseline battery of, of studies and tests and identifying, you know, has there, has there been neuroendocrine disruption? Do we need to adjust their hormones? And then with EEG, if we're seeing disruption in waveform patterns, um, this is sort of our area of expertise. And so we look across a number of different dimensions, whether it's uh, coherence between the different areas of the brain talking to each other. And specifically what we're interested in is how does the back of the brain talk to the front? And when we talk about alpha frequency, we're doing eyes closed resting EEG. And we want to see where people's unique individual frequency is, usually somewhere between eight and 13 Hertz, which means they're encoding information eight to 13 times per second. And if we see a cluster of neurons that's firing at five Hertz, five times per second, we can point to that and say that may be undermining your effort. Mm. Um, and depending on the location of the injury, for example, if it's the front of the brain, uh, this is the executive function area of the brain, they may lack attention, focus, concentration. Um, and typically we'll see that corroborate with the symptoms that they're experiencing. And so we run that EEG through a normative database and, and some computational analytics. And then we'll customize a treatment protocol for each of them using this third technology called transcranial magnetic stimulation. It's been FDA approved in the US since 2009, I think even earlier than that in Canada. Um, but it's, it's been approved for depression. We're using it off-label for traumatic brain injuries and, and PTSD. And we'll navigate to the area of the brain that's seeing the injury. And we'll just give it a gentle stimulation and try to wake up those neurons so that they return back to their normal level of function. In most cases, uh, in veterans, that's going to involve uh, cognitive neurons to fire a bit more rapidly. And so we'll tune it in a way that's going to cause those neurons to fire a, a bit faster. And then in other cases, uh, we may ask the neurons to slow down just a little bit. And so you need that initial brain map to make those decisions. But interestingly, most of the market is not taking that extra step to actually use, uh, use this map to customize the treatment. And so that's, that's the part where we're trying to um, move the needle in terms of honoring our diversity, both in terms of our biology, but also in terms of how we sustain the injuries. Um, it's not always a concussion. Many times it's just due to chronic sleep deprivation. Uh, in other cases, it could be due to uh, significant substance abuse, those kind of things. And so uh, uh, we talk about all those things that, during our initial visits. I would love to know from Ned, from your perspective, what the recovery journey was like for you. And I know you mentioned, I'm just going through my notes here that I've been writing down your recovery with regards to sleep, focus, emotional regulation. Can you walk us through what it feels like both from the point when you really started 
and that was when things were quite bad mm-hmm. all the way through sort of the recovery process what comes back online how you're sleeping better how you're focusing better how you feel that you can regulate your emotions better i'd love to know what that journey feels like for someone that is recovering from a brain injury or brain injuries i should say yeah yeah so you know from what we've seen here and i've been at the company for um almost a year is that every brain injury is different um like eric said you know some are caused by blasts some are caused by uh, addiction or, or substance abuse, sleep deprivation. There's so many different things. So, you know, I'll definitely walk you through my my experience, but I also want to be careful that you know, we we also recognize that just like everybody's brain is unique, the, the recovery and, and how they move forward is unique. Um, so, you know, I kind of walk through what my life felt like as, as I sustained these injuries. You know, I'm going to walk through some of the surprising things. Because I think your your audience can you know kind of gets a sense of you know when you sleep better, when that foundational piece is in place, when I start to sleep better, everything starts to follow that. You know, Eric talked about the endocrine system, and all my numbers started to get better. And so you know, strangely, everything becomes easier. You know, I was talking to a, a patient um, earlier uh, over the last couple of days about this. Like, you know, tell me what you feel like. Cause it's been a while since I've gone through the treatment. I, I kind of want to remember. And this person said, I, I, there's still things I don't want to do. You know, like no one likes to necessarily do their homework or do, but they said, the barriers to me doing those tasks are now gone. Hmm. And that what, to me was a great way to explain kind of what happens or what happened to me when my brain started to recover is that all the things that I just felt like I was constantly fighting myself. You know, I knew I had to do homework. I had to get this job thing done. I had to take my kids somewhere. What I was just battling myself constantly and I had to convince myself constantly, do this, do this, fight it, fight it. Once, my, once I started to go through the brain treatment, all those barriers disappeared. It didn't change my likes and dislikes, but I just got stuff done. And when you get stuff done, your wife is happier with you. <laughs> you know, you're you're show you're picking your kids up at sports on time, um, and all of a sudden, people around you are happier because you're a happier person, and your life just kind of starts to meld back in. You feel like you're part of your community again. That's how I felt it kind of happening. Is I just felt like I was taking this veil off my face, and like I could kind of experience life again. And it's it's the weirdest progression because you quickly forget what it used to feel like it's like when you have an elbow injury or something all of a sudden it's gone one day and you're you don't remember it you're just excited to to be moving on to the next day that's what it felt like all of a sudden i felt back i I was i felt like i was 20 years younger i could i could study for four hours straight i could i mean like everything came together and i don't want to oversell i mean we're not selling anything here i don't want to say that this treatment's a panacea because it's not, it's incredible and it, it helps a lot of people, but it's not a panacea. You still have to do the work. Um, but it was basically like I, I was I was 20 years younger. That's so cool. Um, we talked a little bit about the glial lymphatic system. I talk a lot about that system when it comes to sleep. When we sleep, the brain washes itself out. The glial lymphatic systems go to work and clean out tau proteins, amyloid plaques, viruses, bacteria, waste products, you know, all those sorts of things. So it's, it's interesting to me that, 
And I'd never actually considered that that's the system that can, one of the systems that can be damaged when we have um, trauma to the brain. And you also mentioned neuroplasticity, which I'm fascinated by. We used to think that the brain was basically established at a relatively young age, and then it would just deteriorate for the rest of our lives. We now know that that's not the case. It adapts and changes constantly depending on what we're exposed to. So I'd love to know more from your perspective, your experience and your, 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 your expertise around what are you thinking with regards to neuroplasticity these days? What are you seeing? What's the true potential of the brain to recover, to regenerate and to improve at any stage of our life? That's a, that's a great question. And I think this is an area of very intense research and it's just, it's gonna be fascinating to find out what we can learn over the next five to 10 years. I think the answer is we don't have 100% knowledge or even I think a small percentage of knowledge about what we can do to invoke more neuroplasticity. Um, I think what we can say comfortably is that the ability to uh, recover from injury, the plasticity that we possess does diminish with age. Um, and so the younger we are, the more plastic we are. Um, and then I think that the holy grail is to find biomarkers that will tell us you know, how much can we recover or how much injury has happened. There's a lot of research going on there um, and a lot of real promise. Um, but I think the happy part of that story is there are a lot of uh, techniques and behaviors we can employ to optimize the amount of plasticity that we have. Uh, a lot of those that I think have been on your podcast, whether it's uh, mindfulness, breathing, uh, meditation, uh, good exercise, proper nutrition, all those things I think uh, work towards that end. Um, but if I could just endorse one thing passionately, really sleep is a foundation for almost all of that. And um, it's not always easy. I think a lot of people, um, uh, you know, there, there's a certain amount of behavior that lends itself towards uh, being underslept. Uh, but there's a certain population that's going to have primary insomnia. Um, and so going to sleep uh, at the same time and waking up at the same time, of course, is important. Um, getting blue light in the morning is one of those things. I think we're starting to better understand that. We're starting to get the word out. Um, but for those who may not be familiar, there are two Nobel Prizes awarded uh, a few years ago for the discovery of circadian rhythm, specifically uh, established by exposure to blue light. So blue light is 450 to 500 nanometer uh, natural spectrum light. Uh, it's most intense in the morning through natural sunlight. And to give you some sense of the order of magnitude, uh, on an overcast day outside, you would get 50 to 70,000 lumen of blue light. If you get high intensity blue light bulbs or full spectrum bulbs and put them right next to your eyeball, you might get 7,000 lumen. And so it's a full wow. order of magnitude less. And so it's hard to replicate mother nature but you think about our ancestors 5,000 years ago, their first cue to wake up was natural sunlight um, touching their retinas. And so that sets off a, a cascade of biological events where 14 to 16 hours later, you'll have a spike in melatonin. And if you listen to that signal at the first time of nighttime somnolence and you get into bed, you'll very quickly go into deep sleep, REM sleep and, and stage three sleep, slow wave sleep. And that those are the restorative stages of sleep. It's been interesting. We've had a number of veterans who got in-lab polysomnograms, which is a gold standard of sleep studies, who are getting almost no REM sleep, which if you touch sleep specialists, they think that's almost impossible. But there are people who will get almost no REM sleep or restorative sleep. They, they may think they're getting a full night of sleep, um, but in fact, they're getting very poor quality of sleep. And so um, I would endorse all of those sort of typical behaviors 
uh, you know, decaffeinating yourself after noontime, uh, trying not to eat too late at night, all those things lend themselves to a good night's sleep. But um, I think that's one of the keys as more research emerges, I think foundationally we're going to find uh, that sleep is the building block that allows a lot of neuroplasticity. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting. I just, I had a t didn't sleep to struggle last night. I slept amazing. I'm crushing it today. So, um, <clears throat> one of the things that you mentioned, which I'm really interested in is the idea of neurological biodiversity. So that's obviously the, the difference between people. And the reason why I'm fascinated by this is there's been so much talk about ADD, ADHD, the autism spectrum. Um, but you mentioned it as well in terms of, of injury and how we can recover from that and how the brain can change. So I'm super curious about your perspectives, having made these measurements in, in, in diff people with neurological differences. I'm just fascinated with what your take is on, on that idea of neurological biodiversity. Because it's a term that I'm hearing a lot more, and I think it's a really good one that we honor to really respect the differences that exist for people in the way that our brains are constructed. Yeah. Well, so I'll take um, uh, the first comment on this. This is Eric. Um, you know, when we do these EEG recordings, it's interesting because uh, you can see differences. Um, and so there's a, a certain type of EEG we call uh, an evoked potential or an evoked response EEG, where you give somebody a stimulus and you measure the brain's response. And even if it's the same event, let's just say we record people when they're looking at a glass full of water. Um, there's a lot of things that happen just in that split second where you're observing the water that are largely unconscious. You notice that the way the light shines off the glass bounces in a certain direction. It must be glass. It's not plastic. That water um, looks more like, uh, or the liquid looks more like water than it does vodka or some other type of fluid. Um, it's clear. It's not uh, red. It's not fruit punch or wine or anything like that. And so these things happen in a split second. And the flash that occurs in your EEG image is encoded in both time and space in three dimensions. And so, but the way Ned may view that in the type of brain image that occurs, like that communication, each neuron is connected to uh, thousands and thousands of other neurons, but the way that that flashes in a split second um, will be very different, for example, than yours or mine. And so, you're you're pulling back on a lot of other memories. There may be, for example, if it was vodka and you happen to have an all-night bender a few weeks earlier and you threw up, there may be a very negative emotion attached to that glass of water. And so uh, we all have unique imprints. We have these signatures uh, with each of these um, memories. And that's just looking at a glass. You can imagine in a dynamic environment how unique all these signatures are. So the brain that is really an incredibly complex and dynamic organ. And so I, I know that there's a lot of effort to sort of map uh, consistent um, linear types of patterns for neural networks. And I fear that we're never going to find a universal sort of pattern because these are all very complex and diverse types of exp experiences are tied into that information processing in a way uh, that makes it very unique. And so there's a certain diversity just in that type of information processing, but more in tune with the treatment process, the types of injuries we sustain, there are some universal features, meaning we talked about slowing of neurons. There can also be a compensatory reaction where if one area of the brain starts firing too slow, 
you may see more activity in another area of the brain that's compensating uh, for that deficit. And so that's where we really start getting into each individual's fairly unique. And although there are patterns that definitely emerge, we see consistencies, for example, with uh, post-traumatic stress versus ADHD versus depression. Um, there are features and elements to each of those images that make them unique. And, and that's what we're trying to track over time is uh, how much um, change has there been in terms of the coherence, meaning how are the different areas of the brain communicating with each other? Is that information being transferred fluidly or there are there interruptions uh, and, and dropped in terms of the communication that's taking place? And so when we talk about uh, diversity, uh, it's along many different dimensions. And then how that is expressed in terms of the phenotypic expression of that electrophysiological signature that can be very different among individuals as well. So, um, yeah, that's super helpful. I appreciate it. And I just wanted to honor this diversity, neurological diversity, which is a new, well, relatively new, at least for me, um, term that, that I, that I thought was interesting that you could put some context around what's got you both excited these days. What are you looking forward to? What's, um, what are you interested in? What, what is your excitement about the future focused on? Oh, yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot, I think, that's uh, emerging that we're really excited about. Um, one, I think, is to be, um, we want to democratize this type of technology to, to everyone. Everyone deserves access um, to, to technology that's going to help them to function better cognitively uh, and emotionally. And um, so we're trying to find ways to both find increased distribution channels, but also uh, potentially to create a, a portable device. And um, that may be down the road just a bit, but we're, we're hard at work to create neuromodulation devices that can be used from the comfort of somebody's home. Um, more than that, I think uh, the scientific rigor with which to approach this and adding, for example, a machine learning component to this is where I think you really start to um, expand the depth of knowledge. And because Pattern recognition to the human eye and the human brain um, has incredible potential, but um, being completely quantitative about it and being able to look at large volumes and libraries of data and, and look for patterns, I think, is incredibly exciting. And so we spent the last six months uh, creating a, a data ecosystem and environment with which to do a lot of these analyses. Um, so that, to me, is really exciting. Yeah. Ned, how about you? Yeah, I mean, obviously, Eric and I share a lot of the same passions, but I'll, I'll go in a little bit different direction. What is exciting to me is being able to widely provide an EEG with these type of insights to a number of different populations to give people insight into how their brain is functioning. We today get insight. I wear a whoop. You know, so I'm, I'm getting my HRV, I'm getting my, how well I slept, my heart rate. Um, I wear an Apple watch to tell me, you know, how, how am I moving today? How have I gotten up and down? I get blood tests. We are excited because there's nothing out there like the EEG that we provide that's providing people insight into their very brain. The foundation of what they're doing, how they're running. Um, <clears throat> and where this gets exciting for me is, you know, there, as I'm sure you know, there is a very specific 
um, there, there are a lot of studies around your alpha band oscillations and your temporal resolution and your visual perception. That in, you know, what that means is if you have a, a brain that's running at eight hertz right now, so you're cycling information, bringing it into uh, your brain through, through, your, uh, through your eyes, you're able to perceive information at eight times a second and process it at eight times a second, right? Well, we work with a number of professional athletes, um, some of the best in the world from all types of different sports. So we're not just working on injury, we're also working on performance. And seeing some of the best in the world come in and they're running at the very top of that band, um, if they're a, you know, let's take, for example, a football player and they're a defensive back. And if they're running at a 13 hertz brain, they're taking in information at 13 times a second and processing at 13 times a second and then making a decision. If you're from the military decision world, that's called an OODA loop, observe, orient, decide, and act. Uh, there, there's a long history of if you have a faster loop and we can go back to, um, you know, fighter pilot days and why this became so important. If you're on the field of play or you're in a boardroom or you're on the floor of any decision-making uh, organization and you can run faster than everybody else as far as your brain speed, not only take in information, but make decisions, who's going to come out on top? Now, the alpha frequency is obviously very specific to sometimes that that if you need to make decisions fast and, and change tasks and everything else, that may be indicative of somebody who may be better at that, but it is not um, determinant. <clears throat> Excuse me. But then also if somebody does have an eight hertz brain, and again, this is not you know, objective in saying this person 100% isn't going to be good at something else. That, that's not what I'm saying at all. But we have found that you know, there's some propensity to be good at something if you have a certain brain speed. Uh, you know, like on the on the football field, we've also seen people who can have a slower alpha and be very very thoughtful, and because they're not going to change tasks as much, and they can fight that that desire and need to switch tasks and go very very deep into a subject. And again, there these are observations that we're making as a company. We have a long way to go on this, and you know we're looking at you know working with a number of universities to to show this in the literature. But it's observationally what we're seeing. That is fascinating to me. When I put my children in an EEG, you know, I give them an EEG, and I can look at how their brain is functioning, it gives me insights into what is going on. Let me give a great example. My, one of my younger sons was, I got him an EEG, and um, he's had multiple. So we're able to track him over time. And his brain was slowing. He's a young teenager. And what we're able to look at that is, okay, something's going on here. We, I was able to get him some neuromodulation to, to push him to where he needs to be. And we found it was actually, for him, partially a diet issue hmm. that was having some neurological um, you know, altercations for him. But the change in him over two weeks, after finding that out, getting supplements correct, getting some neuromodulation, he had his first date in his life. All of his anxiety had gone away. I'm like, Jack, you know, what, what's going on, man? How, what, like, you know, I wasn't nervous anymore. And I went on my first date. And, and you know, again, not, we're not talking causation here, but, but it's really cool being a parent and understanding my children better on how they're wired. And so 
you know, back to kind of your initial question is kind of rambling. What am I excited about? We all deserve to know what's going on in our head. We all should know it. It's, it's so enlightening and helpful and has changed how I live my life and my whole family lives their lives. I think that's a really great place to stick the landing on this one um, and a really great vision for the future. So thank you, Dr. Eric and Ned, for taking the time to hang out with us today and increase our understanding of the brain and what the future might hold for all of us when it comes to our, our brain health. If people want to learn more about what you're up to, where can they go online to connect with you and to learn more about your company? No, that's great. Thanks so much for a, for a wonderful interview. Appreciate what you're doing and, and the research you're doing and the people you're helping. Uh, your website is a, is a place I go regularly for information. So uh, thank you for that. Um, so to, to find us and our company, we're at waveneuro.com. And that's our, uh, that's our foundational landing page. We're also, uh, that, that's where we're putting most of our information, where we're focusing our effort. Fantastic. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate you taking the time to be with me today. Absolutely, Greg. Take care. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. All right. I hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Ned Mason and Dr. Eric Wan, all about wave neuroscience, the science of neuroplasticity, neurobiodiversity, and how we can optimize our brain health. I really appreciate you sticking around and listening to the whole episode. If it was helpful, or you know anyone that might benefit from this, please share it on social or send the episode to them. I'd greatly appreciate that. If you want to give us a review on iTunes, that would be also extraordinarily helpful. And if you want to let me know what you thought on social at Dr. Greg Wells, I would be thrilled to chat with you about that particular episode. So thanks so much for listening in. I really think the mental health is something that we all can all work on right now more than ever. I think it's important for us to do so. And on that note, I wish you all better health and that you all stay well and safe.